fellow ag nerds. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, I think you found the right show. Now, throughout the years of doing this podcast, five years now of doing this show, I've had the chance to connect with several of you who listen here on a regular basis. And let me tell you, I am always, always, 100% of the time, blown away by the intelligence and talent and ambition of the type of people who choose to tune in to the Future of Agriculture podcast. People like you listening right now. And as I reflect on the podcast and conversations with all of you, I often ask myself the question, what is it that I have to give to these people? I mean, I'm not going to teach those of you who farm how to farm. Uh, I'm not going to teach those of you who are entrepreneurs how to grow a business or researchers how to do research or investors what to invest in. What can I bring you through this content that can continuously be of value to you? And it's not very easy for me to answer that question. Now, in a lot of cases so far, the reason we've been around for 270 plus episodes is to provide a better understanding of what's happening on what I like to call the fringes of agriculture. Ideas that are not mainstream at this point, but might make the case for becoming a growing part of the future of agriculture. That's that's kind of been our shtick here, right? So it's innovations, it's new companies, it's new ways of solving important problems or thinking about important problems or new ways to look at our food system. And lately, I've started to think about this show also as a vehicle for better connecting various aspects of the value chain. So not just focusing on technology that's impacting the farm, which has been a big focus of this show, but also covering more stories impacting food systems more generally which of course the, the farm's going to be a big part of, so continue to be a big part of this show. But perhaps maybe through this content, I could start to help those of you who farm better understand buyers or those of you in ag tech better understand researchers or you who are in processing better understand sustainability leaders, etc. And of course, you know, vice versa and, and so on and so forth on all accounts. But maybe this starts to create more connections between these groups that still seem, in my mind, relatively fragmented. You know, farmers focus on farming, processors focus on processing, etc. I think there's opportunity for some more connections sort of along the value chain. I don't know. It's just something I've been thinking about lately. No big changes. This isn't like a huge announcement. But if you start to see more and more episodes that are about innovations related to other aspects of the food system, not just farming... That's kind of why I'm, I'm just always tinkering, as you probably know if you've listened to the show for any amount of time. But anyway, that thought is quite relevant to today's episode, which is going to focus further downstream uh, from the farm on really on food, specifically on why smart people make bad food choices, what changing diets means for the future of agriculture, and some interesting ideas related to the importance of the next few decades specifically on food production, uh, unlike any time previous, and uh, our guest will make the case unlike any time after that. But these next few decades is a really interesting window. 
I have on the show a guest who really I've been following their work for quite some time and someone I've connected with a handful of times over the phone throughout the years. And I'm really glad to finally get him on the show. And that's Mr. Jack Bobo. Jack is a food futurist and the author of Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. He's also the CEO of Futurity, a food foresight company that advises companies, foundations, and governments on emerging food trends and consumer attitudes and behaviors related to the future of food. Recognized by Scientific American in 2015 as one of the 100 most influential people in biotechnology, Jack is a global thought leader who has delivered more than 500 speeches in 50 countries. He previously served as the chief communications officer and senior vice president for global policy and government affairs at Intrexon Corporation. And prior to joining Intrexon, he worked at the U.S. Department of State for 13 years as a senior advisor for global food policy. Now, the first part of our conversation here in today's episode will be about Jack's new book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. Then we're going to pivot into what those dynamics mean for agriculture and that opens us up to what I think is a really fascinating conversation about the future of food and ag that weaves in themes from sustainability to differentiation to food policy and beyond. So you'll definitely want to make sure you stick around for that. First, though, I ask all of my guests when I start the interview just to kind of break the ice and check sound levels a question. Now, that question almost never makes it in the episode. In fact, I don't know that it ever has. But in this case, it really is a fitting way to start our conversation. And that question I often ask is, what book has been most formative to you in your career? Here's Jack's response. Well, in the last probably five or 10 years, the book Nudge by Thaler and Sunstein has had a big impact. And that's a book about behavioral science and how we can nudge people to do things that are in their interest without limiting the choices that people have. And for me, it was really the confluence of a lot of things that I had been thinking about for a long time, and it helped to pull those ideas together. And it's had a big impact on sort of my career and the way I think. Yeah, I could definitely see that, especially in the context of what we're going to talk about here today in your new book about why smart people make bad food choices. Uh, where are you seeing people make bad choices in this context? Just up front, you know, I'm not a dietitian, uh, you know, I'm not a public health official, or so I'm not an academic. And so I'm not really coming at it from actually trying to decide what is good and bad nutrition. I think that most dietitians would say, though, that in many ways, there are no bad foods, they're just bad diets that, you know, any food could be part of a healthy diet. So it's not intended to demonize any particular product. You know, I eat my donuts, my cookies, my cake, and all of those things too. But it's really about how do we make sure that the balance is there so that we're also eating the vegetables that we know that we should and in the right combinations. When I talk about bad food choices, it's that we're leaning towards the less healthy aspects. And just to put that in context, today, 42% of all Americans are obese. And by 2030, that number will be 50%. So I think most of us know people who are overweight. And again, it's not to demonize those individuals. The real question at the heart of my book is, why is it that in 1960, we knew nothing about health and nutrition and nobody was obese? And today we know everything about health and nutrition and 42% of Americans are obese. So it's not an information deficit problem. We're not going to fix it by telling people more. You know, nine out of 10 Americans don't eat, you know, five servings of fruits and vegetables, but they mostly know they should. 
they're just not doing it. And so the sort of central thesis of the book is there was a time in which our food environment delivered healthy outcomes as the default because nobody was trying, nobody was counting calories, nobody was, you know, looking at portion sizes and those things. What would it take for us to get back to a world in which we never counted another calorie that our food environment simply led us to lose one or two or three pounds a year for the next 30 years? You know, it's not going to magically disappear, but we would just slowly change our food environment and healthy outcomes would become the easy outcome. And now, I mean, a change of this magnitude that's happened since 1960 to today and, and the fact that it's, you know, looking like this trend will continue unless something happens. No, that sounds systemic to me. So I guess the question is, is the food system to blame for that? Right. And much of this is really just the last 45 years. In 1975, obesity rates in Europe were higher than America. <laughs> So, you know, it's hard, again, to wrap our minds around the fact that America has not historically been a country of, you know, people being overweight or obese. This is something that's happened in many of our lifetimes. So a lot of the things that have happened, you know, have happened incrementally. And we think about the idea of supersized portions. And in many ways, the idea of supersizing can be traced back to the mad genius of one man. Back in the 1960s, uh, David Wallerstein was working for a chain of movie theaters, and he was tasked with selling more stuff at the concession stand, which is where theaters made most of their money then, just like they do today. And he just could not convince people to go back for a second bag of popcorn. And all of a sudden, it hit him. What if people are embarrassed to go back for more popcorn? They want it, but they won't do it because they'd look gluttonous or something. And so he thought, well, what if I give them a larger size? And of course, sales took off, but not just popcorn, but all of the stuff at the concession stand, soda and all of these things. So it was just like this magical moment that people before that had thought, well, if we offer uh, more at a lower price, that's discounting and it undermines our brand. And then a switch was flipped and they realized, no, 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 you, you can just sell as much as you want. But it, again, it didn't happen overnight. He went to work for uh, McDonald's and he tried to convince Ray Kroc to offer larger sizes. And Ray Kroc said, if people want a second bag of fries, they'll just go get it. Of course, he was wrong. And it took till 1972 to convince him to give it a try. And of course, that's when the large fry was introduced. And so, so much has changed. You know, in 1955, a soda at McDonald's was seven ounces. You know, a child size today is 12. So all of these things have happened, uh, you know, when it comes to food uh, and the dietary guidelines, you know, obviously that was intended to help make people healthier. And that was going on in the late 70s, early 80s. And there was sort of this struggle between do we focus on fat or do we focus on sugar? Turns out dietary fat won. And so they said you should be eating less fat. And the food company said, hey, we'll sell them products that have low fat. And of course, all of these products started flooding the market, low fat this, low fat that. But the problem was human psychology, you know, that we saw these products and we thought, oh, if it's low in fat, it's probably also low in calories and it's healthier for me. So we just ate more of it. So it actually unleashed our ability to overconsume a product that was intended, if eaten in exactly the same quantity in the same way, would have helped us. But our psychology led it to not deliver that positive outcome. And so there's like example after example of ways that, you know, we've taken steps to try to make us healthier and it hasn't quite worked the way we expected. And then just recently, there was a book by uh, Cass Unseen, who you know, is one of the co-authors of Nudge called Too Much Information. And 
what he finally realized, he, he was working for the Obama administration and was one of the fathers of the menu labeling laws. And when the menu labeling went into effect, he sent out a note to all of his friends. And one of them came back to him and said, calf killed popcorn. And what the person meant is that now they were going to know how many calories that movie theater popcorn had. And they were actually going to enjoy the experience less because sometimes we just don't want to know things. And that's one of the challenges we have with all of the labeling that's out there is that, you know, when we want to know how many calories, it's because we're trying to be healthier. And if we're trying to be healthier, we probably would have eaten something healthy anyway. But when we don't want to be healthier, we actually don't want to know that information. So we're not going to actively look for it. And so, you know, our brain is kind of protecting us or defending us from uh, doing what we really want to do. And that's part of what uh, Sunstein came to understand is that, you know, again, that psychology is so important. It's not just about having the information, but it's about how people use the information and who uses the information. You know, a low income person may choose the most caloric product on the menu because they want good value. Whereas somebody, you know, who in his higher income, you know, they probably would have chosen the salad anyway. And so, you know, we need to understand a lot more nuance in order to to see how that information is going to be used. And one of the barriers there, and you write about this a lot in the book, is what our brain is telling us may not be true. Um, So can you maybe talk about some of those barriers, assuming that somebody wants to make better choices for them, whatever that looks like, what biases or, or sort of fallacies do they need to be aware of and watch out for? Yeah. And so I mentioned low fat earlier and how people might overconsume products, you know, cookies that are labeled as low fat. And that's something called the halo effect. It's just this idea that when there's one positive attribute to a product, we tend to ascribe all sorts of other good qualities to it. Um, you know, it's a little bit like our kids, you know, they're good at one thing. And so we, we want to believe they're good at everything. <laughs> and yet we know in our hearts, they're probably not. And so part of it is just recognizing that we have this tendency. And so if you see something that's low fat or organic or, you know, a superfood, that you should be careful that you're not ascribing other qualities to it. So it doesn't mean that it's bad in and of itself, but it does mean that, you know, you may overconsume that product simply because of that label. There are all sorts of other areas, you know, confirmation bias is something that we all grapple with. And just this idea that we tend to Uh, believe information consistent with our beliefs, and we discount information that's inconsistent. Of course, we're all really good at seeing bias in others. We're just not so good at recognizing bias in ourselves. And that's also important. And I often give an example that uh, when I'm doing speeches, that if I read an article that said organic is more nutritious than conventional food, you know, what would I do? I'd ask, who are the authors? Who funded the research? And what was their methodology? And that, that's pretty reasonable questions to ask of any scientific study. But then if the article had said organic, no more nutritious than conventional, what would I have done? I would have tweeted it because it's consistent with what I believe. In other words, I didn't ask the tough questions of things that are consistent. I only asked the tough questions of the other one. So to me, it doesn't feel like I was being biased because I asked perfectly reasonable questions. And so it's important that we understand our own biases, because then we can have better conversations with others about theirs. 
So there are all sorts of things like decision fatigue, which impacts people when they're going to the grocery store. You know, we always say you shouldn't go to the store when you're hungry. Well, you shouldn't go to the grocery store after a long day of working either, because uh, decision fatigue is a subset of mental fatigue. When we're tired, we just make worse decisions. When we've made a lot of decisions, we make worse decisions. And that describes the grocery store, right? I mean, you're going through and there are tens of thousands of products on those shelves. And so you're constantly making decisions like every minute that you're there and it wears people out. And the less money you have, the more exhausting it is because you need to make, you know, more careful decisions about how you spend your dollars. So make a list, stick to the list that you have. Things that we're told to do and we kind of know we should, but we generally don't. And so how do we, you know, sort of make sure that we do follow the things that we know we should do and what tricks or habits or other things do we need to put into place so that we do what we need to do or we should do or we want to do. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't think in general, it's not that we're mentally lazy. It's just that we have that fatigue from what we're focused on. We're focused on our work, our family, our relationships, our friends. And so I think what happens is those labels become us outsourcing our thinking when it comes to what should go in our body. And we just say, you know, it's somebody else's responsibility. You tell me I'm going to buy it if it looks appealing, healthy and, you know, of good value. So from a standpoint of this book of kind of helping smart people make better food choices, it does seem like we have to make it easy. I mean, are there examples of where we're we're making the, the right thing easier out there? Yeah. And so, you know, I, just finishing off on the labeling point, you know, remember everything on the front of the package is what the food company wants you to know. And everything on the back of the package is what the government thinks you should know. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're being influenced by front of package, you know, you, you may or may not be getting the benefit that you're interested in. So there are actually a lot of things that are going on that could make things better. Uh, there's the Healthier Food Coalition in the, the UK, which is working with grocery stores. And one of the things that they've done is they've redesigned the grocery store and they found that they could increase sort of fruit and vegetable purchases by about 15%. And this was over the course of a year just by redesigning the layout. And so there are just little nudges that can happen and the consumer wouldn't even know. I mean, they're already being nudged in many ways by the grocery store. You know, there's no mystery why the candy is right there at the checkout. It's not a mystery why we walk in a certain way around the store. So they're already shaping that food environment in a way that is pushing one outcome. So just by redesigning, you know, their examples. And, you know, if we can scale that to more and more grocery stores, we could just have healthier outcomes. There are things that uh, restaurants can do. You know, how things are labeled on the menus can encourage us to choose things that are a little bit healthier for us. You know, where things are positioned on the menu has an influence over which item we choose. The names of the items, you know, there's a classic example of, you know, if you call something the low-fat black bean soup, you know, a certain number of people will gravitate to that. Um, but most people will think it's going to taste terrible. But then you call it the Cuban black bean soup and sales increase dramatically. And not among people that are sort of trying to lose weight, but just among people that think, hey, that sounds, you know, very interesting and enjoyable. So it's like one group is eating it because they have to and don't even expect to like it. And the other group is eating it because they want to, not realizing they might be getting a health benefit. So how do we begin to tweak the options that are in front of us? Restaurants could help us in terms of portion sizes. 
you know, we're all aware that American uh, restaurants have large portions and we all like that because that's good value. But if you eat two meals for the price of one, that's not actually good value because you've consumed more and you probably wasted your money. On the other hand, if you get two meals for the price of one, that's fantastic value. And so, you know, I, I often give this example that I was at the Cheesecake Factory uh, a few years ago with my family for Father's Day. I wanted to teach my kids about large portion sizes, so there was no place better to go. We order the food. And I ordered the steak, mashed potatoes and green beans, and it comes and it's there in front of me. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, well, that's not as much food as I was expecting. So it was just this really big plate, though. And so I replated the food onto a nine inch plate I had in my wife's purse. And I realized that it was actually two full meals, that the plate was so big that it had not looked like much food. And if I hadn't replated it, I would have finished it all. Because in my mind, I totally could have consumed all of that and still had my cheesecake for dessert. And when I measured it, I took a tape measure out and actually measured it. It was a 15-inch by 12-inch plate. That's just enormous. And so, you know, two adult servings of food fit comfortably on that plate and still made it feel kind of empty. And so that's part of the psychology is that we often finish our meal before we know we're full. And so it's not enough to just, you know, know that that's too much food. It's also the psychology. And even if I had cut the meal in half and put half of it aside, it still wouldn't help me as much as you would think, because an hour later, my brain would have been saying he didn't finish his dinner, right? Because it would have known that I didn't actually complete the food. And so even not eating all of your meal doesn't help as much as we think it should. So an alternative to that would be, what if you could go into the Cheesecake Factory and say, hey, I'd like half of that to go and boxed when you serve me my food. So I never see it. If I want to open it up and eat a little bit more, I can. But now I get served a portion and I can finish my meal and my brain thinks, oh, he finished his meal. It's time to start you know, burning off calories. So there are a lot of these little nudges. So no individual nudge is going to solve all of these problems. But if we begin to add up you know, dozens and dozens of nudges throughout our day, they actually will have that impact. And we won't even notice that we've made any changes. That's a really interesting point. A lot of the people listening to this are going to be, you know, further upstream, you know, wondering like, okay, well, number one, you know, you think a lot about where these trends are going. And obviously in this book, you're talking about how people can make better choices. The trend of, of just eating as much of whatever we want has to reverse at some point. It is, it is, you know, it's not going in a very good direction. So assuming it does, people start making better choices. Are we just talking about eating less or are we talking about shifts in diet? And, and what I'm getting at here is how does this affect the agriculture industry? Right. And so I, I was giving a, a presentation to the Animal Ag Alliance uh, a month or so ago, and I, I put up there on the screen uh, shifting diets because I know it's a little sensitive topic for the audience. And part of what I was reminding them is that, you know, we all know people who are overweight or obese. There are brothers, our sisters, our parents, our children, ourselves, and, you know, we want them to be healthier. So we do need to change the diets that we have today. Now, does that mean dramatically reducing livestock products or something? Well, it certainly doesn't have to at first. So as you mentioned, just eating less, would make us healthier. But we also know that we're probably not eating as balanced a diet as we should too. 
So, you know, step one is just let's consume less and still be, you know, happy with what we're eating. But two, you know, let's find a, a healthier balance. Nine out of 10 Americans are not eating the fruits and vegetables they need. You know, uh, many Americans could probably eat less animal products. But it's not because I think American producers should produce less. Many places in the world need more animal protein. You know, I see this as an opportunity to increase global trade. You know, by 2050, we need between 50 and 100% more protein. You know, some of that's going to come from alternatives, whether that's plant-based or cell-based or other things, but a lot of it's going to come from animal protein. So we're not talking about a shrinking pie and people are competing over less and less. The question is just how much growth will there be? And will some of that be taken by plant-based, cell-based, or the livestock industry? So it is a growing pie. And so producers should not be fearful of it. But it is important that trade is easy so that the products produced here in the United States can reach the places that need it overseas. You know, I'm thinking that we do need to shift diets, we do need to produce, but there are many places who would benefit from access to what we produce here. Right. So, you know, with all this, this is just putting a heavy burden on the consumer of food, right? I mean, we've talked all about the health. Your brain's working against you on making healthy food choices. Also, you know, there's this whole supply chain, this whole value chain that has a large environmental footprint that is a lot to think about. What evidence do we have or examples that that we can start making better choices, more informed choices at scale. You know, I think about, oh, well, is it smoking? Look at look at how smoking's reduced. But smoking's a little different, right? Because you don't have to open up that pack of cigarettes three times a day and choose the right cigarette versus the wrong one, right? So food's a little different. But you know, what evidence do we have that that this can be done? Right. Food is absolutely more complicated than that. And when people promote things like soda taxes, they often use tobacco as the example. And there are a lot of problems with that. I mean, one is that soda consumption is at a 30-year low and obesity is at a 30-year high. So if we're focusing on soda taxes, we're clearly not actually tackling the underlying problem. And it distracts us from the real problems. Obesity is not one problem. It's a thousand problems. So it's going to be more complicated to address. It's a little bit like food waste. You know, we think of food waste as a thing. But food waste for apples is different than tomatoes and different from cake and all of these different things. And so, you know, there isn't going to be one easy solution to all of those. And when it comes to food waste, it's always been in the interest of consumers and companies to reduce waste because that's just money thrown away. And so if it still exists, it's because it's hard. And so we need to recognize that some of these issues are just hard to deal with. Having said that, though, you know, there are all of these different threads that I feel like are coming together. So I mentioned the one about retailers. More and more restaurants are becoming aware and wanting to find solutions. More and more food companies want people to be healthier. They have that desire. They're not quite sure what to do. In my book, I talk about the work that uh, Google is doing trying to reshape their food environment because they give away the food to people. And so they're eating one or two or three meals a day, up to 200,000 people eating at Google every day. So they're able to test these ideas in their own kitchens. But then the companies that work with them, like Compass Group, are taking those ideas to the hospitals and hotels and schools to implement them. So actually, a lot of these ideas are now being spread 
schools are redesigning their lines so that, you know, the vegetables are in different positions, that the, you know, snacks are in different places to nudge the kids towards healthier options that they'll never even know that they've been nudged. They will just eat a little bit more vegetables and a little less dessert. So, you know, there are things that we can do, but it's not just going to be one solution, but we need to sort of all be thinking about it every day and sort of motivating the government to be thinking so that, again, they can be nudges, not major policies that tell us we can't have things because that doesn't work. You know, when New York City tried to ban large soda cups, you know, people voted against it. And it's not just people who drink soda. It's people who just don't like the government telling them what to do. People don't like to be told you can't have a big cup. But if you went into a restaurant that gives you free refills and they just handed you a 12-ounce cup, you probably wouldn't say, hey, why are you giving me a 12-ounce cup? Because you can go back as often as you want. So why does Subway need to give me a 21-ounce cup if I'm dining in the store? If I ask for it, I get it. But the default could be you know, the smaller cup. And if you normally drink a cup and a half of soda at those restaurants, the difference between one and a half 21 ounce cups and one and a half 12 ounce cups is about 12 ounces, you know, and that's 150 calories per person. Subway, 7 million customers a day, that's a billion calories could be reduced just by nudging people and not limiting their ability to do anything. And every restaurant would make more money. So there are little things we can do, but we need to do all of them. There's not going to be one that's going to fix it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You've mentioned, I think actually in your TED talk, I want to say you talked about how in the next 30 to 40 years, we're going to need to produce as many calories as we have the last 10,000 years. Is that right? And you kind of walk me through that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you can kind of do the back of the envelope math, but you know, if we were to add, uh, you know, we're going from, you know, seven to, you know, nine or 10 billion people. So we're going to add about 3 billion people over the next you know, 30 or 40 years. And we've got the 7 billion people that are here that are eating, you know, more and more every day. But you also have all of those people who are increasing their income and are going to be demanding dramatically more calories. But, you know, if you go back, you know, 50 years, you know, there are only what, you know, four or five billion people on the planet. You go back a hundred years, there are only a few billion people. So the numbers are increasing so quickly that, you know, that's where you end up with, you know, that huge demand. You know, for most of human history, there are only a couple hundred million people on the planet. So for most of that 10,000 years, there just was nobody here <laughs> and they weren't eating very much anyway. And so, yeah, so it, it just has to do with that change. But it's also important to recognize that after 2050, you know, population growth slows pretty dramatically. You know, we're actually not having more kids. The number of kids that are born this year will be more or less the same as are born in 2050. And so, you know, there will be a point in which, you know, population growth stops and starts to slow down. And, you know, by 2100, which feels like a long way away, but it's not, you know, that's only the equivalent of, you know, what, 1940, you know, that doesn't seem very far. And so, you know, we're just not that far from, you know, 2100, the population could be one or two or 3 billion less than it is today. And so, you know, there will be a time when we stop thinking about more and more food and we start thinking about better and better food. And so I like to say that we're at that one unique moment in all of human history where we're going to stop asking farmers to produce more and we're going to start asking them to produce better. For all of human history, we just needed to produce more food. 
Now we need them to begin to produce better food. You know, there's still half a billion people going to bed hungry, so we still do need more food. But, you know, we also have 2 billion people that are obese or overweight. So, you know, we need to be thinking about better as well. What's that look like in practice? I mean, if you're a farmer, let's say you own, you own, you know, some farm ground in central Indiana, that's your livelihood and you've been producing corn and beans. Does any of this stuff start to hit your business decisions, you know, that you're looking at from a food futurist standpoint and think, you know, maybe I need to start producing some, you know, more food products instead of ending up in biodiesel or, or ethanol or, or going to, a, you know, feedlot byproduct, that sort of thing. Maybe I want to produce something different. You know, if you were in that situation, would that start to hit your business decisions? Yeah, I think I was actually in Indianapolis speaking to the soybean growers a couple of years ago. And, and I said, in 2050, there will be no soybean growers in America. And I kind of let that hang for a moment. <laughs> but then I said, you'll be high oleic, you'll be low linoleic, you'll be a value added farmer. Let some other country be the commodity, you know, low price seeker in the world. Let's produce better stuff that's worth a premium. And, you know, let's do that here. And so, you know, that would be part of my message is that as there's the shift toward quality over quantity, you know, I think most people should want to be on the cutting edge of that, the leading edge, because those are the people who always get the premium. You know, if you're just getting into organic today, you may not get any premium at all for your product, or at least not as much as you would have had you done it, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. And so you may be forced to do it by your buyer, but it's not because, you know, you're going to make a lot of extra money. So it's always best to be first. And with that, you know, you have a policy background. And one thing I wonder about is, so so let's play that out a little bit. You know, if we are producing more of these kind of specialty type products to meet domestic demand for U.S. national food security, we probably don't need the amount of acres we have in production here right now. A lot of the food we produce gets exported. So from a policy perspective, it does seem like a lot of our U.S. farm policy is kind of in the name of national security. But if it's going to export, that doesn't really enhance our national security or our food security, does it? How do you think about that? How do you reconcile that? And if, if this is a tangent you don't want to go down, let me know. But I, I am it's something I've been wrestling with. Sure. Well, you know, we, we export some products and we import others. And so having a surplus just means that in times of disruption that, you know, we're going to be able to swap things out. You know, back in the 2008, 2010, when we had the food price crisis, you know, some of that was driven by corn. And it's not that we had a shortage of corn during that year, but the shift to ethanol increased the global price. And so, you know, think about it. You know, the U.S. went to ethanol because of oil prices. But the U.S. is an importer of oil, so we take the global price of oil. So it doesn't matter how much ethanol we produce, we can't impact the price at the pump because we're a taker of price. But we are a giver of price when it comes to corn because we were the largest exporter of corn in the world. And so when we shift to ethanol, we actually increase the global price of corn. And so many people then swapped out rice for corn and then wheat for rice. And, you know, so it had this sort of you know, snowball effect. It's not that there's a shortage, but, you know, people didn't have the money to buy it. You know, it was a demand side, not a supply side crisis. So part of having that buffer zone or cushion is that, you know, in times of you know challenge, if we're not importing one product, we still have something else. But I think of the surplus in the United States differently. I mean, I think of it as 
We are importing the environmental footprint of agriculture for the world because we're exporting food to the world. In other words, if you export corn to China, you're importing whatever environmental consequences from China or Brazil or other places. And that's a benefit to the world. You know, and so today Europe has their farm to fork strategy. It's all about reducing the environmental footprint of agriculture in Europe. But, you know, Europe is the largest importer of food in the world. And the country that sends the most food to Europe is Brazil. And 70% of all animal feed is imported into Europe. And so, you know, Europe has exported its environmental footprint to the most biodiverse country on the planet. That's the cost of not being self-sufficient in a place that could. Not every place can. But, you know, right now their farm to fork strategy says we want 25% of our cropland to be organic by 2030. Well, based on their own economic analysis, that would lead to an 8% reduction in production. So where's it going to come from? Well, it's probably going to come from Brazil and, you know, Indonesia and places like that. And so it's not enough to just think about the impact of production here in the U.S. I mean, there are absolutely environmental consequences to the food that we produce, eutrophication of waterways and all those things. But, you know, the consequence of not doing it is global deforestation. And so that's the trade-off. We need to think of sustainability not in terms of good or bad or right or wrong, but in terms of choices and consequences. Consumers think of sustainability in terms of local sustainability. If I use less water, less fertilizer, less insecticides, that's good. But agribusinesses think in terms of global sustainability. The more intensively I farm, the lower the impact in other places. And so it's a continuum from local sustainability to global sustainability. And there will always be trade-offs between the two. Organic has a lower local environmental footprint often, but it has a bigger global footprint because you just need more acres. Consumers, though, are working with food companies and asking for regenerative because it has that local environmental benefit, but we need them to also understand the global consequences of that. And it's not that one is good or bad. We actually need both. But right now, one is much more vilified than the other. You know, we need policymakers to at least understand that trade-off. Well, thank you so much, Jack, for that conversation. This is actually something I have really struggled with, and I don't think I necessarily belong in that smart people category, but I definitely have a tendency to make those bad food choices, mostly due, I think, to stressing myself out at work and with family commitments, and then opening myself up to being vulnerable to those types of food traps that Jack mentioned there at the beginning of our conversation. So reworking my habits and nutrition for both me and my family is something that I've been working on a lot lately. So Jack's insights came at a really good time. Highly recommend you follow Jack on all the social media and make sure you pick up Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices at bookshop.org or Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. Hey, I want to continue to give shout outs to you wonderful people who are spreading the word about this podcast. Today, I'll read an Apple review from Anatha Desikin, which is titled Great Podcast, Great Insight. It says, I recently discovered this podcast. Great show with great guests and insights. I've learned a lot in the short time I've been listening. Thank you, Tim. Hey, thank you, Anatha. Glad you found the show and really appreciate the review. So if you're listening right now and you have yet to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, please find the show in the app and do so to help spread the word. It really means a lot. 
Well, as always, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I never take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.